Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. We are going to kick it off with a nice little bit from Messy Nessie Chic, which is a look at Anita Berber. Hmm. She was a woman known for being too scandalous, even for 1920s Berlin. Seems unlikely. It's a high bar, right? Yeah. (laughs) It opens up with a still photo of her in one of her most famous choreographies, which she named Cocaine in 1922. (laughs) So that's going to give you kind of an idea of where we're going here. It's a theme you'll find throughout. But Anita Berber was known as the high priestess of debauchery. Wow. She had these deeply cold black eyes. She had flaming red hair. And she she broke boundaries that even today, by our current consciousness standards, would still be considered shocking. When she wasn't on stage or on screen, you could probably find her in residence at the city's most luxurious hotel with her pet monkey on her shoulder. It was not Jackson who did it first. <laughs> and she was also known for wearing like a fur coat with nothing underneath, maybe some rolled stockings or her favorite antique locket on a long chain also filled with cocaine. (laughs) She's kind of (laughs) one of the original tragic muses of the time known as an iconic disaster piece. But she was born in 1899. She came of age during the Great War. And by the time the armistice was declared, she was on tour in Bucharest. Hmm. So once she got back to Berlin, the country was in mourning for a terrible war. There were still food shortages. There was such bad inflation that a wheelbarrow of money could not buy a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Wow. In response, these desperate Berliners were really just trying to reach for anything they could to medicate trauma. The streets were awash in cocaine, heroin, and prostitution. There were tons of variety shows, and she would choreograph her own performances, including one about a transgender Roman emperor, Heliogabalus. Hmm. In another dance, she appeared as Salome emerging from an urn of blood wearing nothing but a purple cloak. And then throughout (laughs) the number, she disrobes and paints her nude body in blood, all to the music of Richard Strauss's opera before just sinking back into the urn. (laughs) And a lot was written about her nude dances, even though she insisted, quote, I am not a nude dancer. Nudity was definitely part of her dances, but the eroticism in her movements was always tied to really dark stuff like death and despair and the grotesqueness of life. She was a goth. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) Or as they called it in those days, expressionist. She was even quoted as saying, if everyone had a body like me, everyone would be walking around naked. (laughs) (laughs) In 1919, she married, believe it or not, into aristocracy. Nothing is known of her husband, Eberhard von Nathusius. That can't be his real name. I know. And the fact they just casually dropped in this article, nothing is known of her husband. Hello, he was aristocracy. How is that possible? But she, even in her marriage, continued openly seeing both men and women. 
including, it's rumored to be said, a young Marlena Dietrich. Hmm. And, you know, with a person who lived such a loud life, it's perhaps no surprise that she divorced her aristocratic husband, Nathusius, in 1921 to move in with her girlfriend, Susie Winowski, who later went on to open a lesbian bar called Le Garçon. And then, for better or worse, she ditched Susie for a con man, eyeliner enthusiast, and expressionist dancer known as Sebastian Drost. And <laughs> from there, we get into a very Amy Winehouse situation because he started mm-hmm. acting as her partner and manager, and the two brainstormed macabre choreographies over a lot, a lot of cocaine. And they started rehearsing what they called dances of vice, horror, and ecstasy. And during this tumultuous time, Berber created her best-known works, Morphine, Cocaine, Martyrdom, Suicide, The Corpse on the Dissecting Table. This is peak goth stuff, y'all. <laughs> wow, yeah. And they also did some poems and illustrations, but it was intense. So Dances of Vice debuted in 1922. Obviously, conservatives were super scandalized that she was daring to make her addiction into art. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this guy that she had paired up with was a con man. He got arrested for passing a forged credit note for 50 million kroner. They found a lawyer who managed to convince the court to let them work until the debt was paid. And after the mess was all settled, turns out that Drost had signed exclusive contracts with three different theaters. The International Actors Union got involved, yeah, whoops, and banned them from performing on any continental variety stage for two years, which is way to kill an artist's career, right? Yeah. (laughs) And then a few weeks later, Drost got arrested again for stealing from two countesses And this time, Anita had to sell her furs and jewels to get him out on bail. And when she attempted to steal the fur and jewels back, didn't work very well. So she and Drost returned to Berlin, where he just stole what was left of her jewels and took off. He was next seen in New York pretending to be a baron and trying to get D.W. Griffiths interested in a film project. But Hmm. (laughs) there's not a whole lot you could do as a con artist like that when you're failing. So in 1927, he returned to his parents' house and died of tuberculosis. And sadly, Anita Berber was not long after that. She was still banned from all these high-end variety stages. So she went to cabarets where she began to raise eyebrows for her belligerence this time, eventually collapsing on stage and was diagnosed with advanced pulmonary tuberculosis. She died at the age of 29, which is just stunning. But she got all that done before. (laughs) Exactly. You know, we think we've reinvented everything with OnlyFans and what euphoria is the big thing these days. But history repeats. Yeah, there's nothing new. The Germans always have done it first. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from thedebrief.org, and it's titled The Confessions of a High-Functioning Psychopath. So as of 2021, approximately 1.2% of the general population is estimated to suffer from some form of psychopathy based on data using the Hair Psychopathy Checklist Revised, or PCL-R. Statistically speaking, that means it is almost guaranteed that many of us have met a psychopath, and in fact, you might have met hundreds of them. Yikes. It's twice as common as anorexia, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, and nearly as common as narcissism, bulimia, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and panic disorders. However, while many psychopaths display antisocial and violent behaviors that tend to be problematic for those that they encounter, there is an atypical group of psychopaths that exist in the greater populace, known as high-functioning psychopaths. 
They do not possess violent tendencies and are in many cases highly successful contributing members of society. They may still retain the telltale characteristics of a psychopath, such as callousness, lack of empathy, grandiosity, etc., but they do not engage in the aggressive behavior that one may see associated with a violent psychopath. Known as the compensatory model of successful psychopathy, the researcher's model was found to be accurate after comparison was made between psychopathic adolescent offenders who reoffended and those that did not. What they discovered was that psychopaths who were high in grandiosity and manipulativeness at a younger age developed stronger inhibitory regulation when they reached adulthood. So you're basically better off the earlier you get it. That's interesting. Essentially, yeah. Well, because or you have least... more time to at least mimic and adopt right. what look like disguising behaviors. <laughs> yeah. So enter Dr. James H. Fallon, a professor of psychiatry and human behavior and an emeritus professor in the Department of Anatomy and Neurobiology at the University of California, who may be a high-functioning psychopath. How does he know this? After looking over scans of his own brain, Fallon discovered that its structural pattern was extremely <gasps> similar to that of the average psychopath. There was a TED Talk and everything about it. It was pretty cool. <laughs> As for the high-functioning part of the equation, his CV should explain everything. Fallon is the author of over 300 papers and books. He has written two personal memoirs, Verja Tears, The True Story of a Soldier's Sojourn Back to Vietnam, and The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain, the latter being an Amazon bestseller. Mm. Over the past 12 years, he has appeared in over 400 national and international TV and radio specials on war, dictatorships, psychopathic behavior, murder, violence, and a range of related subjects. Presently, he is also the chief scientist with Cognigenics, a gene-editing firm that is currently developing brain enhancement technologies. Yet, beneath those accomplishments, he describes a lingering darkness that has remained for many years. He says, As a child, I was always happy and smiling. I was always with different people. I was the favorite in the family. I was sort of angelic in some respect. <laughs> I mean, okay, hold up. Doesn't that sound like something a psychopath would say? Right. Like, it may not be accurate at all. Yeah. That's just him saying, like, no, I was the best. Everyone yeah. loved me. Just like, wanted to kind of point that out. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, grandiosity is one of the known cluster mm -hmm. traits of psychopathy. So uh, <laughs> he describes his childhood, as many others do, enjoyable and carefree. Unlike many psychopaths, he was blessed with a loving family, supportive teachers, and many friends. He says, I was quite popular, and even when people didn't like me, they kind of liked to hang around me. I hung out with the acting group, the nerds, I was in all the sports, skiing, swimming, football, wrestling, track, and field. So, when most people imagine the tale of a budding psychopath, the popular <laughs> kid in high school probably isn't the first story that comes to mind. Uh, However, nope, nope, that is the first one that comes to mind. By the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we, um, many of us have seen the articles about how many successful CEOs are actually pretty high in a psychopathic right. checklist scale. But this background may be the reason why Fallon is such a peculiar case or not, mm -hmm. depending on what we find out about other popular kids. <laughs> that is partly because the genes responsible for psychopathic behavior tend to be expressed more in certain environments. One example being a difficult childhood. Fallon says, you may have the genes, but if you're not abused or abandoned early in life between birth and two or three years old, then they don't become defects. However, this did not mean that all his psychopathic genes failed to rear their ugly heads. As Fallon recalls, many of the people that he was closest to had noticed that something was strange about him. He says, this one priest used to call me Baal. He's calling me the devil. <laughs> and... <laughs> He recalls one particularly disturbing encounter where the priest told me, there's something extremely dark about you. 
Fallon says, people found me very persuasive. From the time I was young, I wasn't thinking about being manipulative, but people would do what I wanted them to do. And Fallon's ability to cope with his condition is often apparent in even his philanthropic interests. He says, I have a fairly strict definition of what philanthropy is. True philanthropy doesn't show up on your tax forms. What my wife and I do is we'll find poor families anonymously, especially single mothers with kids who are impoverished, and we really lay it on for Christmas. We spend a lot of money to get them right. Fallon also works soup kitchens in both the United States and Europe, donates money to support the building of small homes for homeless people, and gives 10% of his yearly income to charities. Fallon asks, what should you do? Do you tell people that you love them, or do you actually give them money? Since I'm wired the second way, telling people I care means nothing. Hmm. He says, I worked with the DOD to improve the way we fight, that is, to find soldiers who are not psychopaths or who will not be triggered into becoming sociopaths when they come back with PTSD. And on one occasion, he recalls meeting the Monsignor in charge of communications for the Vatican, who, after inviting him to assist in consultations, also asked him to sign a copy of one of his books for the Pope's collection. Fallon obliged and now holds a position, among other like-minded individuals, as a member of the Vatican Arts and Technology Council. Wow, what a dubious honor to connect psychopaths with the church. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so despite the challenges imposed by his unique condition, Fallon has learned over time to adjust to the world around him in positive ways, a trend that continues today. Fallon admits, I want to win. I took it as a challenge. That's what drives me. Yeah. People tell me it's working, but it is exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's nothing wrong necessarily with saying I'm going to do good out of spite. You're still doing good in the end. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to me how somebody feels on the inside as long as they're doing the right things and they're not planning to murder me. You know, those are the two big things for me. But you need a framework and you need an architecture and you need support with people who are validating your efforts. Well, yeah. And you got to figure if it's one percent of us, we can't put all one percent of us in prison. The only realistic option non-psychopaths have is to keep the psychopaths supported so that they don't turn to violence. Yeah, and also, they're extremely efficient. Yeah. Like, you want them on your side. Absolutely. (laughs) For a lot of reasons. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next link. link. All right. Well, we often have robots are getting smarter type articles on this podcast. So for balance, we now have one about how humans are getting dumber. No, we already know this. (laughs) It's from Gizmodo, and it's called An Influencer Pilot is Under Investigation After Being Accused of Crashing His Plane on Purpose. Oh, my God. So the man is named Trevor Jacob, and he's a former Olympic snowboarder and now professional YouTuber. Most of his videos are in the extreme sports category, involving a lot of skateboarding and skydiving and jumping over moving trains on a motorcycle. He also has a handful of videos with titles like Skateboarding Across America, We Got Arrested, and I Went to Prison for Train Hopping, which may turn out to be useful experiences for him as the Federal Aviation Administration is now investigating his latest video in which he, perhaps deliberately, perhaps not, but definitely deliberately, crashes a (laughs) Taylor Craft BL-64 plane into the foothills of the Los Padres National Forest with the whole crash caught on camera as he parachutes away from it. Wow, what a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Now, his claim, which you can see played out over the 17-minute video, is that he was flying over the mountains to sprinkle his dead friend's ashes over the great outdoors as the friend would have wanted when the engine unexpectedly stalled and he was forced to abandon the craft midair and then hike his way out of the mountains 
until an anonymous man with a truck happens to come by and gives him a ride back to town. But aviation professionals and amateurs alike have pointed out a number of problems with his story. For one thing, even with a stalled engine, they say the plane could have continued flying level for another 15 to 20 miles, meaning he could have gotten himself much closer to safety and potentially even made a rough but safe landing in several clear spots that you can see on the video. And even if you think, well, he panicked and just felt like he had to get out immediately, his detractors have noted that as Jacob is climbing out of the cockpit, he seems to deliberately nose the plane downward so that it would crash within sight and not 15 to 20 miles away from his camera. He also made no effort to restart the engine, which it probably would have done if he'd tried, and instead slowed down the plane's speed, which he had no logical reason to do, and which made the front propeller stop turning, thus ensuring a faster crash. There's also the question of why he was flying with a full skydiving parachute already on his back in the first place. Some (laughs) pilots might fly with what's called a bailout rig on their back, but it's much thinner and smaller than the high-tech rig that Jacob is wearing, and you can indeed see in the early part of the video how much trouble he's having fitting into the pilot's chair with this huge thing on his back. Jacob, for his part, responded that he's very safety-conscious and always flies with a full parachute, but viewers immediately pointed out that he's not wearing one in his other flying videos. He also seems to have the cabin door already cracked open before the engine fails. Uh... And apparently, after the crash, he first hiked to the crash site instead of going for help, supposedly to gather his camera footage, but also perhaps to fix any sabotaged controls that might prove he deliberately stalled the engine oh himself. Oh my gosh. Ooh. Yes. Speaking of sabotage evidence, there's clear footage from the interior of the cockpit before the stall because he had a camera up installed in there. But he includes no interior footage in his video after the stall, perhaps because it would be obvious from the position of the controls if he had flooded the fuel mixture or done something else intentional. What's more, some sources have reported that after getting to safety, Jacob flew back out to the site with his own crew in a helicopter to clean up the crash himself. Which you might think is just the environmentally friendly thing to do, but it's actually against regulations. Yeah, (laughs) because because when a crash happens, mm -hmm. yeah, they want to formally inspect the site to see if they can figure out what went wrong. That's just tampering with evidence, is what that is. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So whether he was hiding anything or not, he very much broke the rules. And as if all that weren't enough, the area of the forest that Jacob crashed into is a designated reserve for endangered condors. So if nothing else, he probably broke some laws just by going in and out of it so many times. Anyway, like I said, the FAA is involved now, and it's not looking good for Jacob. Best case scenario, I think he loses his pilot's license. Mm -hmm. Worst case, he could easily end up going to jail for insurance fraud, public endangerment, who knows what else. You know, don't be a YouTuber, kids. It never leads anywhere good. That's (laughs) really the only lesson we can pull from this. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. All right. Well, I want to go back to awesome women to talk about because this February is already hitting me real hard. So (laughs) The Ringer's got an amazing article about Amy Schneider and the art of keeping Jeopardy winning streaks secret. Oh, I've Mm -hmm. been watching her. She's been doing really, really well. Oh, yeah. We started off on November 17th of 2021, where Amy Schneider is just another Jeopardy contestant carrying out a ritual for those who managed to make the Trivia Olympics. Hosting a watch party with a small group of friends, Schneider knew, of course, what most of the people in the room didn't. She not only won the game, but would go on to win at least another 38 not to mention the cool $1.3 million prize. Mm-hmm. And this is because, as you can imagine, the show does not air live, right? Jeopardy actually records a week's worth of games 
on each day, and they have 46 hmm. tape days that are scattered throughout the year. So the show does tell them, tell as few people as possible about what will unfold in the interim. Quote, the rule of thumb they gave us is anyone who would have been at the taping if they had allowed an audience was safe to tell. And that's because they've kept the audience close to the public since early 2020, hashtag pandemic. But for Schneider, who actually won her first game on September 28th, that meant keeping her success quiet outside a group, including her girlfriend and a very, very, very small handful of others. And Amy Schneider is not the first player to have to balance this secrecy and headline-worthy money. In fact, Jeopardy's most decorated champions have all told stories about the period before their fortunes became famous. Quote, it's like, okay, how do I make sure that Sony Pictures doesn't get mad at me and take away my big check? That's definitely a good motivator. Yeah, I can't <laughs> believe they don't just make them sign full NDAs. Like, you can't tell yeah. anybody mm -hmm. what's happened. But I guess they used to do it in front of an audience, so there was always some group of people that knew. Exactly. Yeah. Austin Rogers, who won 12 games and $400,000 in 2017, describes it as, we can't stop you from spoiling it, but just don't. <laughs> and, you know, one of the arguments for shutting up about it, he says, the show promises to paint it in this great way, and you want that surprise to happen for everyone else. So don't go around spoiling it. It's kind of an honor system, right? And for mm. those champions who have just won not only a lot of money, but maybe quit your job, possibly start a new life on a tropical island amount of cash, this is a really hard secret to keep, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Rogers admits that he, like Schneider, hosted watch parties for his games and, quote, the snowball effect was real. The first one, three or four friends came. The second one, five or six. And by the ninth one, the bar was packed. Uh, Larissa Kelly, a four-time contestant who was part of the winning team in 2019's All-Star Games and originally won six games and $222,000 back in 2008, won these funds in the midst of completing her dissertation. Quote, the teller was taken a bit back with me coming in dressing like a schlubby grad student with a huge check. <laughs> yeah. But she ended up being saved by a second teller who happened to be a Jeopardy fan. And she was like, no, 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 this is legitimate. It's okay. And, you know, for players like Schneider, whose streaks have required repeat trips to Los Angeles just to keep doing those tapings, the secrecy of a streak in progress is even harder to preserve. Mm -hmm. For example, Ken Jennings, he had no option but to let his bosses know what was going on because they had to cover for him at work with a series of excuses about sudden conflicts and illnesses, all to the point where Jennings felt like he had a secret identity. Quote, wow. lying to everyone I know for months on end is taking a psychological toll on me as well, he wrote in his 2006 memoir, Brainiac. Quote, the secret mm. starts to make me feel a little schizophrenic. I'm the Ken Jennings who's shattered game show records, whose ever-growing daily winnings total is starting to look like a life-changing amount of money. But nobody knows about him yet. I still have to be Ken Jennings, the boring suburban dad in his same old mundane treadmill of an office job pretending nothing has happened. <laughs> and for Schneider, she's introduced in each of her games as, quote, an engineering manager from Oakland, California. But... This has kind of turned out to be a little bit of a lie. Quote, I actually, after a bit, stopped being a manager just because Jeopardy was taking up so much of my time that I couldn't give my team the attention they needed. Now she's at a different position at the company that does not involve managing direct reports. 
So it's it's a really cool story that kind of deals with fame, the weirdness of timing, and having to kind of manage it all. But if you're a Jeopardy fan, the whole article is definitely worth a read. Yeah, that's exciting. I have about one of my mom's cousins was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh, and they showed the episode. I was like, oh, cool. He like won a lot of money. But also I was like, I don't I don't know who this guy is. Like, this doesn't <laughs> affect my life. And for him, he was like, I've been keeping this secret. And I'm yep. like, I don't really feel like anything was kept from me. You know, I don't... <laughs> there are lots of secrets you've been keeping from me, but I'm not particularly invested. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but good for you. I'm glad. I'm glad people get to win game shows. That's awesome. Yeah. Hopefully our time will come. I feel like we're amassing all kinds of trivia on this podcast alone. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We're gearing up. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from studyfinds.org, and it's titled Limb Regeneration, A Reality. Scientists Successfully Regrow a Frog's Lost Leg. Yay! Hmm. But, yeah. I mean, because there's some creatures that do that, mm-hmm. and there's some that don't. Like, this isn't necessarily like, oh, and humans might be regrowing an arm soon, right? Yeah, like salamanders uh, can regrow tails, and I'm guessing as amphibians, they're kind of, I don't know, sibling species to frogs? Well, it's basically just science is at it again in this scenario. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> researchers from Tufts University say frogs, like humans, are naturally unable to regenerate limbs. However, scientists put a cocktail of drugs in a wearable dome, sealing the elixir over the missing limb for just 24 hours. And this process set in motion an 18-month period of regrowth that restored the frog's missing leg. The study author, Dr. Narosha Murugan, says, It's exciting to see that the drugs we selected were helping to create an almost complete limb. The fact that only required a brief exposure to the drugs to set in motion a months-long regeneration process suggests that frogs and perhaps other animals may have dormant regenerative capabilities that can be triggered into action. So, in this study, researchers triggered the regenerative process in African clawed frogs by enclosing the wound in a silicon cap called a biodome. It contained a silk protein gel loaded with five drugs, each fulfilling a different purpose. Scientists dampened inflammation and inhibited production of collagen, which causes scarring. They also encouraged new nerve fibers, blood vessels, and muscle to form. Researchers observed dramatic growth of tissue in many of the treated frogs, recreating an almost fully functional leg. Keyword being almost. (laughs) Yeah. And it took a year and a half. I mean, if you're missing a limb, a year and a half is still better than not getting your limb back. But I mean, that's an investment. Yeah, for sure. So the new limbs had bone structure extended with features similar to their natural leg. They also had a richer complement of internal tissues, including neurons, several quote-unquote toes grew from the end of the limb, although without the support of underlying bones. The regrown limb moved and responded to stimuli such as a touch from a stiff fiber. The frogs were also able to make use of their new leg for swimming through water, much like the one on the opposite side. Within the first few days after treatment, they detected the activation of known molecular pathways that are normally used in a developing embryo to help the body take shape. The first stage of growth after loss of a limb is the formation of a mass of stem cells at the end of the stump called a blastema. Professor David Kaplan says mammals and other regenerating animals will usually have their injuries exposed to air or making contact with the ground, and they can take days to weeks to close up with scar tissue. Using the biodome cap in the first 24 hours helps mimic an amniotic-like environment, which, along with the right drugs, allows the rebuilding process to proceed without the interference of scar tissue. 
Previous work done by the same group showed a significant degree of limb growth thanks to a single drug, progesterone, with the biodome. However, the resulting limb grew as a spike and was far from the more normally shaped functional <laughs> limb achieved in the current study. The five-drug cocktail represents a significant milestone toward the restoration of fully functional frog limbs. Corresponding author Professor Michael Levin also says we'll be testing how this treatment could apply to mammals next. Covering the open wound with a liquid environment under the biodome with the right drug cocktail could provide the necessary signals to set the regenerative process in motion. Do you guys remember in Zoolander when David Duchovny's character, he was a hand model and he had his hand in like this like <laughs> sealed chamber? That's what I'm picturing right now. No. Like a, a big rounded chamber attached to whatever limb was missing and it's just slowly developing a hand or an arm or whatever inside the chamber. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. I, I was thinking of Deadpool and that little baby limb because Deadpool can kind yeah. of regrow his limbs, but it's like a horrible, awkward, and disgusting process. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what we're, we're heading towards. Good. Thank Good. you, Science. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, quote unquote toes, that's really something. And <laughs> right. 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 The, uh, the resulting limb grew as a spike. There's, there's some ground we got to travel first. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad they didn't include photos on that article <laughs> actually there is a video if you want oh to watch even that. better <laughs> so i'll leave that to y'all to, to look right. up studyfinds.org <laughs> next link next, next link. link all right this next article is a quickie it's from the guardian and it's called i'm really just high on life and beauty the woman who can see a hundred million colors Ooh. Ooh. So it's another one in this series they seem to be doing right now on superhumans, right? We had the one about the super recognizer a couple weeks ago, and they have a link to a super smeller article underneath this one as well. But this color one is especially interesting because the condition is 100% genetic, and they have nailed down not only the gene that causes it, but the biological difference that makes this woman and others like her able to see colors so much better than the rest Ooh, of us. Ooh, gimme, gimme. So the woman is named Conchetta Antico. And not surprisingly, she is an artist, originally from Australia, but now living in San Diego, California. Antico is what's called a tetrachromat, which means she has a fourth type of color receptor in Ooh. her retina compared to the standard three types of color cones that most people have. And this means that while a normal person can distinguish around one million different colors, she can see around a hundred million. Whoa. And the really cool thing is that because she's an artist, she's able to paint the world as she sees it. And the result is these gorgeous landscapes in what the rest of us might think of as like a psychedelic color palette. You know, the tree trunks are green and purple. Animals have all these different rainbow hues. And they don't actually include any of her art in the article, which seems like a major oversight. Yeah. But it's really easy to find them online if you just Google her name, which is what I did. Okay. So Antico wasn't actually diagnosed until about 10 years ago. And up until then, she just thought everyone saw the world the way she did. And she couldn't understand why people didn't like going out into nature as much as she did or how they could calmly put up with ugly, overpowering <laughs> things like fluorescent lighting, which is ugly no matter how you see, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> She said it also explained a lot about her childhood because given what she knows now, it seems very likely that her mother, who died when Antico was 12, was also a tetrachromat. She said her mother used to decorate the house in wild colors, just like Antico does with her own house now. And she even did things like install red and blue lights inside their swimming pool so that it would create this shimmering violet color Ooh. in the water. 
Ultimately, Antico was diagnosed because one of her art students happened to be a neurologist, and they emailed her a paper about the condition thinking she might have it. She contacted the researchers and, quote, Within 24 hours, I was sending my saliva up to Washington. (laughs) (laughs) So far, they've only found the genetic mutation in women. And while around 15% of women do carry the underlying gene, they're not sure yet why only a small number of those actually go on to grow the fourth type of receptor in their eyes. Hmm. Ironically, women who carry the tetrachromin C gene also have a much higher risk of having daughters who are colorblind, which Antico's own daughter is. Which has got to make for an awkward upbringing, right? <laughs> yep. Having your mother be so focused on color and you as her child can't even see the basic colors <laughs> that most people see. Yeah. Antico said, I told her she was fine. She was just different and special and amazing. But she also said that she would teach her how to see color anyway, which feels like an oppressive dynamic. But who yeah. am I to say? <laughs> uh, Antigo also says that learning about her diagnosis has made her more patient with her art students mm. since learning that she is truly different She's adapted her teaching style to have students focus more on really looking at a scene before they start painting. Mm. And she says their art has become richer because of it. And, you know, it probably does help, but I don't think she's going to somehow trick their brains into seeing colors they biologically don't have the receptors for. (laughs) Right. You know? Yeah. She's a very lucky person who seems to enjoy the world around her quite a bit. Her paintings are very cool. I definitely recommend looking them up. And we can at least get a small window into what it's like for her. It's a good thing she became an artist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like how could you become anything else? The world looks like that all the time. Exactly. And genetically, I guess it's a good thing that we're not all walking around in awe of our environment, painting it all the time, because somebody's got to collect the garbage, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But imagine all the colors in that garbage you can see. Like That's true. (laughs) (laughs) The most gorgeous garbage. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include scientists are creating synthetic dimensions to probe the limits of 4D reality. A novel artificial leaf design ups the carbon capture rate by 100 times. And a billion years of time are mysteriously missing. Scientists think they know why. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, maybe buy us a cup of coffee, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.